Happy Saturday. It is October 16th, 2021, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker, the style editor of Airmail. And I'm Michael Haney, one of your deputy editors here at Airmail. Welcome Welcome to Saturday. Saturday. Michael, it's an exciting moment. We've got Succession coming back. We've got Succession coming back, and you've seceded from New York for, for the time being. You're over in London now. I have officially succeeded from New York. I am in my spiritual home. Thrilled to be here. Brits, we love you. As you know, we love the English. We love uh, anyone who reads airmail knows that we spend a fair amount of time occupying ourselves with everything happening in the United Kingdom. And I'm thrilled to be here. It is freeze. The city is very exciting right now. You know, there are a couple issues, which we get into in our view from here this week, in fact. But for the most part, it feels absolutely marvelous to be here. And I love London. What can I say? It's been too long. Well, okay. It's, we'll get into that in a minute, thanks to John Sweeney. But let's start with something that everyone wants to start with, even if it's 7 a.m. or any time of the day. You know what time it always is? Is it Fabio time? No, it's not Fabio time. That's close. It's always time to talk about pizza. Yes, it's so true. Just when you think you know the best spot in the world for pizza, Elena Claverino comes in and upsets everything we thought we knew. Yeah, this is, let's start out with something great, which is pizza. It's always, like I said, it's always time to talk about pizza. So this week, Elena has led us all to what we believe is the best pizza in the world and in Italy. It's in a small rural village in southern Italy called called Cagliazzo. It's about an hour north of Naples, up a dilapidated winding road. And for centuries, this was home to, as Elena says, the Italian village trifecta, a church, a cafe, and a funeral parlor, and not much else. It's got a population of about 5,000 people, and it's tourism, and its economy relies entirely on tourism, until one exceptional pizzeria owner and founder of the pizzeria, 58-year-old Franco Pepe, came along, right? But it all comes back to Franco Pepe. Right. He was born and raised there. His father kept a bakery running during the war when the Germans had sort of bombarded the countryside. He himself moved away to Milan and then came back some years later, and he wanted to make pizza. Started a little pizzeria there in this tiny town, and he started to sort of like mess around with the recipes. He had these unheard of concoctions, which were pizza with pistachios, lemon zest, fondue, even one with apricot jam and hazelnuts. But then he came upon his redesign of the simple Italian classic, the pizza margarita. And that was what he called the mistaken margarita, the inside out margarita. And it became a gigantic hit. It's so brilliant. And this is the kind of food tourism story that has me booking travel right away. But Michael, what do you think is the best spot for pizza in New York? Mm, gosh, it all depends what kind. There's a new one that just opened in my neighborhood called 90 Seconds to Napoli, which is pretty darn good. Um, mm, you know, I'm, you? I'm a Pasquale Jones girl. Anyone who knows me knows that I can eat about two to three Diavola pizzas and like not even blink an eye. I love them so much. And my friend Ryan Hardy, who owns, he's the chef and owner of Pasquale Jones, he, we always joke that we have two stomachs. One is for everything else and one is just for pizza. Because for some reason, like no matter how much I've had for dinner, I can always find room for some pizza. I love it. It's just a special food, Michael. I think it is my favorite food. It's everyone's favorite comfort food. And as Elena points out, pep-based pizza one was awarded the Associazione Razze Pizza Napolitana for best pizza, triumphing over Naples historical spots. Now you go to this town. Every night, she says, around 700 people are lined up in front of the uh, pizzeria in the hope of snagging one of the restaurants, 140 seats. So I would travel for this pizza. Maybe you and I should book our next travel trip. Travel alerts. Italy, we're coming for you. See you soon. Not like Michael. Obviously, we didn't spend enough time there this summer. I mean, between the two of us, we spent like, what, two months in Italy this summer, but we'll be back. Eating our share. Yeah, of somehow pizza we missed this place. Obviously, we're not very good at our jobs. 
now the secret's out. So you can join the 700 people waiting every night there and see where it takes you. Perfect. Well, in less delicious news, we should probably talk about the situation in London right now. All right. We have John Sweeney tackling our view from here this week. Now, John is a British journalist and author, and he's also the host of the very popular podcast, Hunting Ghislaine. And that would be Ghislaine Maxwell, for those who live under a rock. And John lives in London, and he's not exactly a Brexiteer, I think it's safe to say. He says it reminds him of the capital of Burkina Faso in the 1980s. That is not a comparison that many world capitals would want to draw, given what his experience there was like. He talks about the fuel shortages. Uh, Those are due to the lack of long-distance truck drivers caused by Brexit, and the fact that many hundreds of thousands of European workers have either gone back home or set up new lives for themselves in prosperous but less xenophobic countries like Germany, France, the Netherlands, etc. And there's also an issue with the pig farmers. So there's a shortage of butchers from Europe. And so they have to kill almost 120,000 hogs in the next few weeks. Not for meat, they're just going straight to the trash. Uh, The fruit farmers are upset. There are no fruit pickers or not enough fruit pickers. And the major stores are already warning that there will be shortages at Christmas because there simply aren't enough workers to move and stack products. Yes, he said it's Brexit coming home to roost now and the inability to fill their gas tanks, inflation that's gobbling up. It's, and we've seen some of this in the U.S. with the supply chain, which is feels like it should be the new dance, the, the supply chain problems. But you're seeing this, I think, he says, you know, it's not just that it feels like Burkina Faso in the 1980s, but it feels almost like a little bit like, he says, in the restaurants and pubs, services almost back where it was at those, as he says, East German levels that London used to enjoy in the 70s, because it's just so much harder to get people to staff there. He lays it quite squarely at the feet of Boris Johnson, as he describes him as elected polar bear. Yikes. I'm just quoting the piece. We mean it. I'm just, that's, that's one, one man's, man's opinion. opinion. Yes, that's I think one that, man's opinion. We assess him as a, a politician, not as a person. I think Boris's sister would say he looks like a polar bear. Now, whether he's electrocuted or not, I don't know, but it's got a shock of white, white Well, Rachel hair. does have a good sense of humor. So anyway, moving on, Michael, to other matters. Moving on. Can we talk about also, last week we had a really big story by Bill Cohen talking about New York's boutique divorce firm for Goldman Sachs. And this week we're back with another divorce-related story by Rich Cohen, sort of under what we call the modern art of divorce. He said, she said, so this is the story of real estate billionaire Harry Macklow and his former wife, Linda Berg Macklow, who were married in 1959. He's a fabulously rich octogenarian. They got divorced in 2016, each walked away with around $500 million, with the exception of their art collection, which has been described as one of the most significant collections of modern and contemporary art in the world. There's 65 pieces, ranging from Picasso to Warhol to Giacometti, but they could not agree on how to divvy up their art collection. So, in a Solomon-like ruling, a New York judge said, you know what? We're going to put it up for auction. You're going to split it in the assets in two. So now, Sotheby's, which won the contest to handle the auction, is going to show this art in Hong Kong, Taipei, Los Angeles, London, and Paris before it goes under the hammer in New York in November and May. Yeah, this is one of the most significant private collections to come to auction ever. And Let me tell you, every auction house all over the world was furiously attempting to get a foot in there and score this commission because it's a huge fish uh, that Sotheby's landed. So congratulations to them. I can't wait to see it in New York. There are so many pieces to this story. First of all, you, you have this couple that built something really incredible together over the course of their union and something that perhaps could have been an important part of their legacy, a very important part of their legacy. And instead, it's being disseminated to wealthy collectors all over the world. So this is great for Sotheby's and this 
is great for you know, the billionaire class that's going to be bidding on some of these magnificent pieces, but it's kind of sad, right, in many ways. And like, you know, as if this weren't tragic enough, Harry Macklow has decided to rub his wife's face in his new life. He married a French fashion executive named Patricia Lazarlando in 2019. And as a means of celebrating their union, he plastered a massive billboard of himself and his new wife on the corner of a building at 432 Park Avenue. This is a neighborhood where his ex-wife Linda was accustomed to walking by every day. So just kind of an ugly way, uh, a fairly ugly part of the old legacy there. Yeah, you know what that little vignette reminds me of? Reminds me of something you might see right out of a show that just is going up tomorrow night, the new season of Succession. Thank you. We have a very fun story this week by Peter Biskind, who looks at Logan Roy. Oops, I mean Brian Cox, the actor who plays Logan Roy, his new memoir is out. And Peter says it's probably uh, one of the best things he's read in a long time. All right. Well, because we don't have the crown coming back, thank goodness we do have succession. That's going to soldier us through this autumn. I did just see photographs dropped of a shooting of the new season of The Crown, and it's got the new actors playing Charles and Diana reenacting their 1991 trip to Italy when things started to fall apart. I should have known, Michael, that you had already, like, The Crown, it's like months before it comes out, but you're already agonizing over each and every casting decision. I'm more agonized. I just want to see, like, what plot points is Peter Morgan going to have? And of course he's got that. So I'll send you the photographs later. You you can take a look and tell me what you think. It's a 90s fashion moment for you, so all the kids should be into that. We're going to get Peter Morgan on the show this time, Michael. Come hell or high water, I am making a note to myself right now. All right, moving on. Talk about an out-of-nowhere story that we're running this week. Apparently Fabio's still a thing. Who knew? So Lewis Wise is really my kind of writer for really no reason at all, at least as far as I can tell. He decides to check in on the 62-year-old model and actor who for some reason became a benchmark standard of male beauty sometime in the 90s. Now, this is a guy who shills for Gap, Versace, and Nintendo, and my personal favorite, I can't believe it's not Butter, for whom he is still a spokesperson. And many argue that he has paved the way for many different generations of male models, even leading up to current man of today, Jordan Barrett. He's become something of a punchline line because he appeared on the cover of many romance novels, but people liked it well enough for Fabio to build an entire career out of it. And let me tell you, back in the 90s, he was quite swishy, at least according to my Aunt Susan, who lives in Iowa. So you're going to throw Aunt Susan under the bus? Hey, she knows what she likes. I'm here for it. Yeah, just for people who, this is one of those, like, I'm sure many people, you know who Fabio is. He was on those kind of Harlequin romances, the guy with the long, dark hair, chest like Conan the Barbarian, and usually what they might call a bodice ripper with a young woman in a bodice or some posing ample bosom or ample thigh, right? And they were often, you thought, illustrated, but they're really sort of like photo montages, I guess. And I mean, Fabio is a testament to having a long career and just like people think, you know what? They might be laughing at you, but he's laughing all of the way to the bank, it seems, right? Oh, yes, indeed. Life has been good to Fabio. And I learned so much from this. Like, first of all, he's Italian. I don't know why that was never made totally clear to me, but I didn't know that. I always thought that he was like sprung from the hip of planet hotness or something. He was a Trump booster. That's a little problematic, but okay. And he's still smarting over the loss of a woman named Jennifer, whom he dated in the early 90s. And she broke up with him because apparently he was too callow and immature. He told Lewis Wise, I still love her now. 
No, Lewis cried back. He said, love is forever, buddy. Love is forever. Fabio, a true romantic, only rivaled by the stories in the romance novels he shilled for. Should we discuss his altercation with George Clooney? We should. Well, my favorite detail is probably his greatest encounter, which was with George Clooney back in an L.A. restaurant in 2007. And it's even recently, the National Enquirer suggested that Clooney, having moved back to L.A., that the rivalry has reared its ugly head once again. And the details... For those of you who do not follow all things Fabio or all things Clooney, I'll give you the long and short of it is Fabio was at a restaurant having dinner with some war widows. He was raising money and Clooney was at the other table and Clooney thought the women were taking his picture rather than Fabio's and he allegedly took umbrage. In one picture he appears in the background and may or may not be giving the finger. Fabio clearly thought so and as he said, he, Clooney, was not a gentleman. Uh, he was very rude. So Fabio goes over and schools Clooney and says, hey, I don't know where you learned your manners, but you probably were like raised in a barn. What happens next remains a little unclear, right? Yikes. These are the kinds of stories I live for. This is why I read People magazine. There's a little shoving, which pushes Fabio over the edge. He says, you know what? You started your career in the ER and you will finish your career in the ER. Eventually, others had to intervene to separate them. Fabio, in his retelling, says, Clooney really got scared. Sure, I'm he sure said, Clooney was quaking over this. Fabio says, he goes to me almost crying, go away, you big thing. Yeah, I don't, I don't I'm not really that buying part. that. I'm sorry. <laughs> like, in a Fabio-Clooney match, like, my money would be on Clooney hands down. Just telling you what I got in the pages here this All week. Right, George Clooney, we eagerly await your response. You know how to reach us. We will happily take your comment and update the story accordingly. He said, he said, let's do it. Okay. Speaking of crazy things in the culture, can I just mention one more story we've got this week? By all means. It's a piece by Madeline Spence, and it's about, you know, we've talked a little about Squid Game on the show. I'm not going to talk about that this week, but I am just going to mention it because as Madeline writes in her cultural contextualization this week. We're sort of in the middle of all things K, and it's not Kardashian. It's all things from South Korea. And whether it's Squid Game, Parasite, BTS, the pop boy band, or a rise in Korean food, uh, she says it might even be what could be a Korean word, which recently entered the Oxford English Dictionary. It's called Hallyu, H-A-L-L-Y-U, which means the boom in the international consumption of Korean culture. And that's what's going on right now. Uh, as she mentioned, all this is traced back to back in 1993, the South Korean government saw how much money Jurassic Park made the movie. And they thought, hmm, it was more money than they made on all the Hyundai cars they sold that year. So they began cocking a plan to build and then export the country's entertainment industry. And 28 years later, we're consuming Korean culture exactly the way they wanted us to. Crazy. It's now estimated to bring in $5 billion yearly to the Korean economy. So quite a huge chunk of money. It's fairly incredible. We're in the wrong business, Michael. I know. Ashley, one of the things we're really excited about this week, obviously, is the return of Succession on HBO. And this week in the issue, we have a, a terrific review, uh, appreciation slash uh, look at a new book by Logan Roy, or as most people know him, Logan Roy, but the real man is Brian Cox. It's called it's called Putting the Rabbit in the Hat, and it's by Peter Biskin, who is one of my favorite writers and one of the smartest culture writers out there in terms of film and TV. He's written one of the best books, I think, on the history of Hollywood in the last 25 years, Easy Riders and Raging Bulls. If you haven't read that, you need to read it. But we have Peter here today to talk about all things succession, beginning with Logan Roy. Peter, welcome to the show. Thank you, Michael. Happy to be here. 
Great to have you. Let's start with Brian Cox's memoir first. You called me out of the blue. You said, I don't know if you guys are going to, have anyone's read this book, but someone's got to write about it because it went, you, this is like three few months ago. You were so excited about it. You, you know, uh, as you say in your story this week, you say it resembles more of a late night monologue delivered at a favorite pub than a, than a sort of straight up memoir, right? Yes. And, and w- w- what made you fall in love with it? <laughs> He sort of starts dishing on um, various various movie stars and people he's worked with, which uh, I found very refreshing because as somebody who's uh, worked in this area for more years than I'd like to remember, you know, one of the uh, prime no-nos is you don't trash your colleagues, either act- actors, directors, uh, producers or whatever, for the benefit of um, journalists. And uh, right off the bat, he says something rather uh, cutting about Stephen Seagal, which, as I said, is a fairly easy target. But then he goes on more critical things about a variety of people he's worked with. First of all, he's been in the business for a long time, and he's made something over 200 movies and innumerable plays. So he's worked with all the great theater and movie directors, or most of them anyway, and a lot of the great actors. But he goes right right off the bat, he says that John Schlesinger, for example, who directed him in Julius Caesar, was a great film director, but a lousy theater director and behaved like a quote unquote psycho uh, and had to have the entire play, every single scene explained to him by the actors. Then he goes on, he calls Kevin Spacey, who did a Disney, who did a Disney film with called Iron Will, a great talent, but a stupid man, stupid, stupid man. You know, he goes on in that vein. He talks about Princess Margaret, who doesn't actually fall into this category, but he mentions after a performance of um, In Celebration, her quote unquote, feeling him up, putting her hand, unbuttoning his shirt and putting her hand on his chest and making her way towards his uh, one of his nipples, while Lord Snowden, who was his, uh, her husband, was standing not far away in the same room. He does a lot of that, and that you know endeared me to him right away. I mean, it's funny that 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 vignette about Princess Margaret Snowden, which like I think until I'd seen The Crown, I would not have believed that that could have happened. But of course, now you see this is a woman who you know is used to sort of petting the animals in the zoo whenever she wants to. I think what you also say is is so revealing in the piece for many people who don't know Cox's journey is you know he started as you say, on growing up on the hard scrabble streets of Dundee, Scotland, a transformative moment comes when he sees Albert Finney in one of my favorite movies from that angry young man's school of movies in the late 50s, early 60s in the UK, Saturday night and Sunday morning, right? And as you point out, Cox says in the memoir, he says, that was all about working class people, people like us. And, and the light goes off in his head, right? Yeah, I mean, he never thought, he wanted to be an actor right off the bat. You know, he says he didn't want to be a grocer or run a florist shop, uh, even, even given his modest circumstances uh, in, in the place in which he grew up. He felt that the British class system extended to the theater as well. And that people like him, people who look like him, people with backgrounds like him, were not allowed to play, for example, you know, aristocrats or royalty. He didn't imagine that, you know, he was going to be able to make it in the theater until he stumbled across um, Albert Finney and all the British working class actors, Richard Harris, uh, Tom Courtney, Alan Bates, Peter O'Toole, who 
made it in the you know the British kitchen you know the British kitchen sink a vein of uh, movies from the fifties and sixties, and that really you know made him think, yes, I can do it too. There are people like me, as you as you said. Um, so um, that, that those kinds of movies, those kinds of actors, were transformative to him. I also don't want to give the impression that he was mainly snarky about the people he worked with. I mean, he was quite flattering about, for example, director Lindsay Anderson, who gave him a note and said, um, "Don't just do something; stand there." In other words. Brian has a Cox has a kind of volatile element to his acting, especially in those days when he was just starting out. And several directors like Anderson gave instructed him on the importance of stillness in acting and uh, not waving your hands around and not jumping across the stage and so forth, but just being there. I love that that note and, and that you note in the, in the in the column this week. And I guess it's almost a good segue to Logan Roy because. So much of Roy, the character, as portrayed by Cox, the, the actor, is standing still and almost simmering stillness, right? And and what and it's all in the eyes and the look. You have a great fondness for for Succession. Why? What do you love about it? And why do you think it has connected so much with 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 viewers? Well, I think that uh, I love it so much because. Um, What's not to like about it? You know, <laughs> the writing is fantastic. Um, the acting is really good, and um, and it and and the whole conception of it, uh, you know, reflects essentially what's going on now. I mean, as as I said in the, somewhere, I think, you know, it's sort of marinated in the juices of the Trump era and the the move toward. Towards the acquisition, the move moves of big tech towards taking over um, the news business, the movie industry, um, television, streaming services, and so forth. That all forms the background for the show. It focuses on a family which um, you know has been identified with the Murdochs and so forth. Although uh, Cox always denies that. He feels that comparing his character with any one of those people, like Rupert Murdoch or whatever, is too limiting. And that you know there are a lot of, of those kinds, or some of those kinds of families, the Redstones, uh, the, the Maxwells in British publishing. You know, his character is is a kind of conglomerate of, of a lot of those kinds of people. You know, the show just foregrounds the immorality, the selfishness, the uh, Cox's words, who's a who's a dedicated socialist, the failure of capitalism, which basically boils down to unlimited greed. And I, you know, tend to agree with all those things. Yeah, I love <laughs> marinated in the juices of the Trump era. I mean, it is 40 years after Wall Street and, and Stone and all that stuff. It's, 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 it's coming at it in a very, mentioning that movie, it makes me think, you know, you and I have spoken a while, like just how these limited series like this uh, opened up a whole different way of telling story and succeeding in drawing characters. I mean, where do you rank succession in the great TV? Everyone's sort of talking about the, you know, the Sopranos right now because of that. And like, you know, what, what, what that achieved. Do you see succession falling in, in as one of the great TV series? Uh, yes, I do. I mean, uh, well, first, let me just say that um, Cox says something interesting about television. He, you know, as somebody who worked in the theater and somebody who worked in movies, he said he loves television because it frees him from the three act structure of, um, of the theater, of drama, and to some degree, movies. Uh, he says, and this is a, if 
I can remember this sufficiently. He says, um, uh, the, th the three-act structure is a beginning, middle, and end. The beginning is inevitable. The end is inevitable. But the middle is not so inevitable. And television is about the middle. And um, that I think that's a striking, strikingly accurate assessment of television because um, opening up the drama, you know, into limited series, into uh, full series, you know, where you have multiple seasons with multiple episodes, uh, gives writers an unprecedented opportunity to um, to do what they do best, which is not tr necessarily true in the movies, where writers have inevitably has have uh, inevitably been second-class citizens but right you know but tv is a writer's medium whereas movies are a director's medium and uh tv does give writers a lot more freeway a lot more a lot you know allowances more, more space and they're much more novelistic than uh movies are, are able to be by because of the um time you know the time constraints you used to use the word novelistic and in, in how these shows unfold <laughs> And it's I'm just remembering the, the kicker in, that you've got is you know, he said this memoir of his is so good. He said had the title Bonfire of the Vanities not been taken, it would have been apropos for this because of just his take no prisoners approach, but also just the sweep he, he takes along socio culturally, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think you know, obviously the the creator and head writer of the show and the showrunner Jesse uh, Armstrong deserves a, a huge amount of credit for this. I mean, Cox didn't invent this show, Armstrong did, but some of the leading satirical uh, writers on television, Brian, uh, McKay, who wrote The Big Short, or one of the writers, the head writer, I guess, on The Big Short, are involved with it. And, and the acting from, the, from every, every single character is really it's kind of amazing. So uh, it's a, 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 you know, a wonderful incarnation of um, many, many themes that are evident in the culture at this very moment, so, which makes it completely relatable to, even though the characters are so wealthy and their lifestyle is so extravagant. It's not, that's, that part of it is not that relatable to, except in a sort of satirical fashion. You know, it's kind of King Lear uh, by way of Veep, I would describe it. Ah, King Lear by way of Veep. I love that. I would say, like, what works about the crown is it's not about the royal family. It's about a family, right? It's just, you know, right. and, and I think what works about succession is it's it's not about a rich family. It's just about a family. The, the, all that set dressing gets us gets the, the eye excited, but all the stuff that happens around the kitchen table, even the kitchen is, table is on you know on Park Avenue, and it's like it's still these these family dramas which which uh, which captivate people. Well, that I think that's true. I mean, you know, it it is relatable on that level. I mean, there's there are edible themes and um, you know all sorts of you know Freudian stuff in it that you know I think that everybody can relate to, and even if you're not a Freudian, and just grew up in a, in a big family, I think it'll be all very familiar. Okay, Peter, so do you have a favorite character in Succession? Is there someone that makes your heart skip when they, when they come on screen? Well, I, I have to say I like Cox. You know, um, as he says at some point in his memoir, he's somebody who can, uh, who can go from a whisper to a bellow in the space of one sentence. His uh, performance is extraordinary. Peter, I, it's, it's, it's such a, a thrill to have you on the show because your ability to give the enthusiastic endorsement and the contextualization of, of, of a show uh, is, is, is so fun. Your review, as I said, of, of Cox's memoir, put it, putting the rabbit in the hat is equally illuminating. Um, and um, we look forward to having you back again. Thank you. It's been fun. Okay, take care. Bye. Okay. 
Well, before we head off, as I've made painfully aware, I'm in London and I'm angsting to get back out onto the streets, see some art, see some people, eat some meals. So do you have anything at all to recommend? I've got a book I want to recommend. It's in the pop culture vein and it's a forthcoming book edited by my old and dear friend, Amy Bell. It's by a writer named Mark Seal. It's called Leave the Gun, Take the Cannoli, and it is the epic story of the making of The Godfather. It is, everyone likes to listen to podcasts right now about the making of things. This is a book about the making of arguably the greatest movie of the last 50 years. And it is, uh, you know, Mark Seal got everyone to talk to him from Coppola to De Niro on down. And it is loaded with unbelievable stories. I'm not going to give any spoilers. I'm just going to say, if you love movies, if you love The Godfather, if you love going inside Hollywood, this book has it all and can't recommend it enough. I sort of tore through it in one long, lazy afternoon and I was delighted by it. And you, dear? I've got a lot of stuff that I've seen here in London that we'll talk about a bit next week. It's been a very exciting week here at Freeze. But what I will tell you is I've been deep into the Jonathan Franzen book. I'm about a third of the way through. My friend Ted and I are engaged in a serious competition. We're trying to see who can finish the Franzen book first. My money is on Ted. He's a faster reader than I am, but it's really wonderful and total masterpiece. Highly recommended if you haven't already. I know we've talked about it a lot, but it bears repeating. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing all you bring back to share with us from London next week. All right, Michael. Well, thank you all for joining us, as always. It's such a treat. And Michael, will you please read us out? With pleasure. Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alexander Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Nathan King and Chris Garrett. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Our theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please do subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We'll be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure and subscribe at Apple Music or Spotify. Tell all your friends. And most of all, thank you for joining us.